word of the Lord comes to us this morning from the first chapter of Genesis. The Bible begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Now I'll skip uh, down to verse 24 and continue from there, picking up on the sixth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, And all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have recorded these words for us about your mighty deeds through the hand of Moses and preserved them now for some thousands of years. Would you... um, through my humble speaking, and more importantly, through your Spirit, imprint these words on our hearts. Help us understand and receive and embrace and rejoice in the identity that you have given us being made in your image. Uh, Refresh us with this sight again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. When approaching this passage, uh, I'll begin with a story. Uh, This is a true story from history. In the year 1900, uh, in England, in uh, Lancashire County, the county north of Liverpool, on uh, on the west coast of England, uh, there was a family uh, known as the Remingtons. And their oldest son, his name was William, William Remington. He was about 16 years old. Uh, He was the oldest of uh, seven or eight children. And uh, times being difficult in that part of England in those days, uh, young William discerned for himself that his family 
uh, didn't have enough resources to provide for all of them, that they were struggling. Uh, And having turned 16, he decided, without consulting with his parents, that it was his responsibility to provide for himself, to begin providing for himself and perhaps also for his family. And so again, without consulting with his parents, one day he just said, i got to start providing. And so he packed up his things and he journeyed south uh, to Liverpool and he booked himself passage on an ocean liner to Canada. And he sailed across the ocean to the New World, arrived in eastern Canada. Uh, From history, we're not exactly sure what happened next, but we know within a matter of weeks or months, he had made his way all the way across Canada to British Columbia. And uh, not finding work in British Columbia, he crossed the border south into Washington and got a job in a logging camp uh, in about 1900. And uh, being one of the younger guys in the logging camp, Uh, the foreman, when he had errands to run or things that needed to be retrieved from town, it was often William that he would send into town. And so one of these times, uh, young William got sent to the blacksmith shop uh, in town to have something fashioned or repaired for the logging camp. Uh, And I imagine this was probably in one of the rainy, dark seasons that we're prone to have up here because uh, William was sitting... Uh, in the blacksmith shop, waiting for this thing to be repaired or fashioned or whatever, and he was contemplating to himself just how wet and rainy it was outside and how warm and dry it was inside. And so he plucked up some courage, and he asked the blacksmith if he would be willing to teach him his trade. And the blacksmith agreed, and so while continuing to work at the logging camp, William from time to time would journey into town and take lessons over a course of months and years from this blacksmith. Uh, And eventually was apprenticed and quit his job uh, in the blacksmith shop, and he moved down to a small town on the Washington coast called South Bend. Perhaps maybe some of you have heard of it. There are no stoplights. Uh, And he opened up a small blacksmith shop called the Willapa Bay Iron Works. Uh, The building is still there. He lived the rest of his life in that town. Uh, His oldest son, like his father before him, left town at 18 and basically never came back. And his oldest daughter is my mom. Uh, And so that's how my people uh, made it here to the New World uh, in part. Uh, I share the story in part because I think in our broader culture as Americans that uh, we typically like to think, consciously or unconsciously, that we are more or less individuals, uh, self-made people with our own preferences, that we've examined the things of the world and decided right and wrong for ourselves, and, um, and we've sort of followed our own path and made ourselves who we are, and that's true and it's also not true. That every single one of us, like it or not, is shaped by the story that we're a part of. Whether we even know the story or not, it shapes us. And so the more that I've pieced together our family history, the more it's helped me understand things like why we all love British comfort foods like eggs fried in bacon grease and potato and leek soup and those sorts of things. Uh, And it's also helped me understand this pattern we have of oldest children leaving home and not coming back. Like that, the Bible presents itself to us as our family history is humanity. And so in the same way, uh, if this is true, and I believe this passage is true, there you know, there are really good questions to be asked about Genesis chapter 1, and I'm sure Brett would be happy to chat with you about that. I would as well, but like, I think this is real history. That this explains the origin of all of humanity. That missionary Leslie Newbegin once said this, that the Bible 
is an alternative world history. It sets the human story in cosmic frame between creation and consummation. And so there's so much to be said about Genesis chapter 1. We're not going to cover nearly all of it. What I want to take a look at is just to dig down and meditate a little bit that if, if this is our family history, if this is the story that we're a part of as humans and as Christians, what does that mean for us? And uh, we're going to take a look at three things that um, all human beings having this as their origin, being made in God's image, uh, we find that three things are true about us. One, that all human beings have been made for a relationship with God. Secondly, that all human beings have been made for a relationship with other people. And that also that we're made for a relationship with the land. And we see all three of those aspects in this chapter, that we're made for a relationship with God, with other people, and with the land. Uh, In this passage, we see um, the Lord. He makes Adam and Eve, it says, in his image. He places them in a garden that is in every way fitting for them. We hear a couple chapters later that God was walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. And so Adam and Eve were were made in his image and they were made for a relationship with him that in the garden, before the fall, they had the kind of relationship with God where they could converse with him and walk along with him and, and perhaps even see him and know him as you might walk with a friend along a path. Likewise, if you... Look at the other end of the Bible. Uh, In Revelation chapter 21, we hear this, that um, the Apostle John is seeing this vision of the future of what's coming before us, and he says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, now the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So we see in the Garden of Eden, God dwelling with Adam and Eve, and we see in the end of Revelation, there's another garden, and the ultimate goal is that God dwells with his people as their God. And so when you see something in the beginning of the Bible and in the end of the Bible, this is significant. I think this is, in fact, one of the major themes of the Bible, that God's desire is to be our God, that we would be his people, and that he would be able to walk among us, and that we would know him closely There's an image of that also in the Old Testament with God dwelling in the tabernacle in the midst of the camp. That the goal is that we should dwell with him personally. That that is what we are made for. Now the fall, a couple of chapters later, creates a dissonance, uh, a level of disconnection in the relationship that Adam and Eve are ejected from the garden. In our day and age, we have communion and connection with the Lord. Through things like the reading of scripture, and prayer, and worshiping together, gathered together in his name as we are now, that God is still with us, that we have a relationship with him. But here's part of what you should see. That it is not now like it once was. And it's not now like it's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, that you have a relationship with God, that you are closely connected with him, and yet also your sense of spirituality should always be laced with a sense of longing for more that you were made for more closeness and more connection with the Lord than you are now experiencing. And it's his intention to satisfy that ultimately, to walk alongside you and to converse with you as Adam and Eve did, to recline at his side as John the Apostle did at the Last Supper. That you are made 
for a relationship with God. Well, a corollary of this is that you are also made for worship. And uh, this is not just true of you. This is true of every human being. That this is our family story. That being made in his image, we are made to worship him. That in Genesis chapter 1, God creates a garden that is fitting for Adam and Eve in every way. It's beautiful. That God himself is beautiful and his beauty is displayed in the garden. Uh, He gives them security, comfort, and significance. They get to name animals and care for the garden. That God blesses them with all these things. And now, whatever it is that you find most beautiful, whatever it is that you think provides you the most significance, the most security, you will worship that thing. That We we spoke about this in our confession of sin earlier, that, that you are made for those things and you are made to worship the thing that provides you those things. Now again, the fall brings a distortion here, and so sometimes we recognize that that's God, sometimes it's other things, but there is something in your heart that is designed for worship, that you will worship that which you find beautiful, that which provides for you. Uh, When I was in college, I went to the University of Washington and uh, did a fair amount of hiking, and uh, one of the hikes we did is called Mount Pilchuck. It's a mountain uh, a little bit east of Everett, and uh, it's a day hike. You hike all the way up to the top, and there's an old Forest Service lookout up there. And uh, in the summertime, it's open. And inside, there's a logbook where you can write down your name and leave some comments. Uh, in fact, many peaks in the Northwest have something like this. Perhaps you've seen it where you hike up to the top, and there's some sort of logbook there. Uh, and I'm always fascinated uh, to see what people write in these logbooks. That you would think that having climbed up all the way this mountain, uh, you know, that you would feel amazing about yourself. Uh, and that people would write something about how great they are and this accomplishment that they've done getting to the top of the mountain, and yet no one writes that. I've never seen someone write that. What do people write in there? Things like, amazing day, spectacular view, so awesome, that um, whether we're Christians or not, there's something in our hearts that almost can't not offer worship when we come into contact with God's character and the things that we have done. He has done. Uh, because we're made for worship. So we're made for a relationship with God. We're also made for a relationship with other people. Uh, we're made for a relationship with other people because we're made in God's image. And God himself is a relationship. That um, The fancy term that we have for this in Christian theology is trinity, which means that God is one God, and yet he's three persons, and they get along real well. Uh, that the Father loves the Son and loves to, um, to create plans that ultimately will honor and dignify the Son, and the Son loves to serve the Father and accomplish His plans, and the Holy Spirit, who's been called the shy member of the Trinity, loves to serve both of them and apply everything that the Son has done to our hearts and be active in creation and all the things, and the three of them, they just get along so well and admire each other, and they're one God, and so you cannot be made in God's image without also being made for relationship. This is something incredibly unique to Christianity. No other religion has anything like this. That a God that is a relationship. And so, being made in his image, we also are made for relationship. And we can see that in this passage, in verse 27 um, of Genesis chapter 1, perhaps in your Bible, like mine, this one little verse is sinner justified. And that's because it's a single verse of poetry inserted into the passage, it stands out, it's supposed to stand out. Um, 
It goes like this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now here's how Hebrew poetry works. It's different from English poetry. Usually does not have a meter and very rarely has rhyme. That's not how it works. Hebrew poetry works by taking a thought and then you repeat the same thought a couple different ways, but you change out some of the words with other words and it shows connection between things. So here's the thought. God created man in his own image. And in the next line, we get the same thought. The words get moved around. In the image of God, he created him. And then here comes the third line. Male and female, he created them. And so uh, the poet, Moses here, changes out image of God for male and female. And so what that communicates is that being made in the image of God in part means being made male and female. That you don't get the full image of who God is without male and female. Thankfully. Uh, That we're made for relationship with each other. Um, We see this in this passage uh, in... Adam and Eve's relationship, ultimately in marriage, it even says uh, a chapter or so later that it is not good for man to be alone. That we are made in his image, we're made male and female, made for relationship. Marriage is an example of that, but I think the principle is even broader than that. That we are made uh, for relationship and friendships with all kinds of people. That we know, uh, rather unfortunately from history, uh, in the wake of... um, World War II and the Cold War, there were a series of orphanages in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, and uh, children with disabilities who were otherwise not wanted were sent to orphanages, and in the orphanages, they were supplied with everything that you need to survive. Warmth, shelter, food, everything except human contact. That they would be placed in laying beds, and they would get fed and changed, but they did not receive love or care. And almost all of them died. Because you cannot survive without close connection with other people. It's what we're made for. Uh, The fall, just like our relationship with God, inserts a dissonance and brokenness in our relationship with other people. uh, That we uh, desire relationship in altered ways or for reasons different than God intended, we experience brokenness and disconnection. This is why uh, some of you hate your family reunions and holidays. They're so awkward. Uh, and yet, um, it's good and right that you long, in fact, perhaps you've forgotten to long, for the kind of connection that you were designed for uh, between people, that you were not made for disconnected families and broken relationships. In fact, that's part of the beauty of worship is that when we gather together on Sunday, you know, C.S. Lewis says what happens is you end up worshiping with, quote, precisely that set of people that you have hitherto avoided. And yet here we are gathered together in his presence and we begin to experience some of the renewal and the restoration, ideally, of the kind of relationships we were designed for that I hope that you experience uh, deep, connected friendships with other people here at church. It's part of what we're made for. That we're made for relationship with God. We're made for relationship with other people. Finally, we're made for a relationship with the land. So we took a look at verse 27, this verse of poetry. Take a look at verse 26 right before it. In my translation, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image 
after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then we get our verse of poetry. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And then listen to verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Does that sound familiar? That verse 26, before the verse of poetry, and verse 28, after the verse of poetry, are expressing the same thought about dominion over the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and every living thing to be fruitful and multiply. And so this is another Hebrew form that you put the most important thought in the middle offset by poetry. So that would be verse 27, you're made in the image of God, male and female. And then you take a closely related thought and you bracket it before and after. And so what this means is that to be made in the image of God also means to be made to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image. That God made the garden uh, as its king and creator and then placed Adam and Eve, his human beings, in the garden as a type of regent to represent him and to rule over the garden on his behalf. So what does it mean to have dominion? Well, we have dominion because we're made in God's image, which means that we're designed to have dominion in the way that God does. It's a reflection of his character. And so what does it look like when God has dominion? Well, there's a couple things that stand out to me. One of them is that God is incredibly creative. That um, there's all this diversity of life in the garden. Plants and animals and every type of thing. That later God expresses concern for every single type of animal and wants them all saved in the ark. Uh, I learned at one point that there are over 22,000 known types of orchids. Orchids. Who does that? Okay. Jesus does. That he finds it so interesting. He's like, check this one out. Here's one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Look at this cool one. 22,000 kinds of orchids. He thought that would be really fun. So part of the way that he exercises authority is with creativity. Another thing that stands out to me is that he uses his authority in ways that promote life and flourishing. So in the days of creation, he creates an environment in the air for birds, and then he creates birds to inhabit that environment. And then he creates the sea, and then he creates fish and whales and things to inhabit that environment, and then he creates the land and the garden and and creates animals and people to inhabit that environment that everything is created in such a way to provide the life necessary for the things that live in that place. And there are these passages in Genesis chapter 1 that feel sometimes like they drone on and on, trees yielding seed and keeping kind, and seeds and kinds, and seeds and kinds. And I think part of what you should hear is that the Lord made every plant just the way that it needed to be. If apple trees don't make apples with seeds that make more apple trees, we don't have apple trees for very long. And so God exercised his authority in a way that generously brought life and flourishing for plants and animals and for humans most of all. 
So being made in his image, you are made intentionally with a desire to be creative and to use that creativity to promote human flourishing. It could be like Adam and Eve and interacting with the natural environment around us, but this applies, I think, to every human endeavor, engineering, teaching, uh, parenting, all sorts of things. Um, that you were designed to work in such a way that is life-giving for other people. And this is why um, sometimes you love your job, that it's so fulfilling. And, um, you know, I, for a brief while before seminary, I worked for Alaska Airlines. And I don't know if this sounds silly, but I loved it so much. You know, like people come in, and they're in Seattle, and they need to get to Los Angeles because they have, like, a grandson that's having a one-year-old birthday, and so I can take their bag and help them get to Los Angeles. That felt so good to do. But also the fall here speaks to why sometimes you hate your job. Probably in the areas where it feels fruitless and unnecessary and like a waste of time because you're made in God's image to be creative and to work in such a way that brings life to other people. Uh, And this is true about Christians and non-Christians that we are all made with this desire. Uh, this last year in RUF at Western Washington University, um, most of the most obvious things we do, large gatherings, retreats, all those sorts of things were, um, we were not able to do. Um, through most of the year, we were um, restricted to gatherings of about five or six. And as a campus club, we have to follow that if we want to continue to exist. And so uh, after having a good grieving period about all that, uh, I got our leadership team together and asked, well, what can, what can we do with five or six people at a time that we maybe wouldn't normally be able to do? And so this last year, um, our theme was smaller and deeper. And we did uh, a ton of camping trips. And over spring break, we weren't able to go to Sacred Road, where um, your friends are right now. That got shut down. And so uh, we decided to take a couple rounds of students, five or six at a time, to Montana and just have a retreat and read some scriptures, and do some hiking in Glacier National Park. And uh, so we took the train, because the train was running. We went down to Seattle. And if you've ever taken Amtrak uh, from Seattle going north or east, you leave King Street Station, and you immediately pass into a tunnel. And uh, I have a little bit of ADD, and so I Googled it. And so it turns out the tunnel was built in 1903. And here's why. That in those days, all of the tracks ran along the waterfront of Seattle, what's now Alaskan Way, and there were between six and eight tracks between the town and all the docks on the waterfront. And so it was actually quite dangerous to get from downtown out to the docks with six to eight tracks of trains moving back and forth. And so an engineer in the city of Seattle approached Great Northern Railroad and Northern Pacific and said, hey, what if the three of us work together and make a tunnel to put all these tracks underneath the city and we can open up the waterfront and people will hopefully not get run over by trains anymore. And so the railroads agreed and they both put their resources together and for three years, 600 men dug from both sides to meet in the middle under the city and finally create in 1903 what was at that point the widest and tallest railroad tunnel in the world. Everyone involved in the production of said tunnel has passed on. And yet all of us have benefited in one way or another by goods and services or transportation that has passed through that tunnel that they, each in their own way, used the authority and dignity that they had been given, being made in God's image, to promote human flourishing. 
So we're made for a relationship with God. We're made for a relationship with other people. We're made for a relationship with the land. What does this do for us? Uh, Well, two things I'd like to leave us with. One of them is this, that um, if this is our family history, not just as Christians, but as human beings, you now know three incredibly powerful things about everyone that you've ever met. Christian or non-Christian, you may not know their name or anything about them, but you know these three things. You know that they are made for a relationship with God. That somewhere in their heart, there's a, a disconnection and a longing to be closely connected with the creator of the universe. Secondly, you know that they're lonely because they're made for a relationship with other people and yet we live in, in a fallen and broken world. And finally, you know that they're disappointed with their job because they're made to, uh, to be fruitful and to multiply and it just doesn't always work the way that it should. And so that is a profound basis to be able to connect with the non-Christians around you, that oftentimes the beginning point of evangelism is to be able to connect something that they already feel is true with the truth of Scripture and to be able to recognize it in them. Uh, I grew up in Washington, went to University of Washington, and then was away for 12 years, and then got called back in 2016 to move to Bellingham and start RUF at Western. So we moved into our neighborhood, And there's a family across the street from us with kids about the same age as ours. And so we're new to being back in Washington. And the first time we meet them, they're headed up the sidewalk and they're all carrying protest signs. And they have just come back from a protest. Uh, And uh, I don't even remember this like five years ago. They were protesting the uh, oil pipeline and the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in the Dakotas somewhere. And the mom was so excited because it was her kid's first protest. On some level, I don't care what you think about the oil pipeline. Part of what you should see is that Carrie, our next-door neighbor, without being a Christian, because she's made in God's image, recognized that the powerful should not oppress the weak and that resources should be stewarded wisely. And to the best of her ability, she was trying to use her authority to promote human flourishing. You can disagree with every conclusion she comes up with and yet see what's there, the remaining shreds of being made in God's image as a human being. And it's an amazing and a profound way to be able to connect with non-Christians around you. Uh, Secondly, I think this gives us insight into understanding how the Lord is at work in your own heart. Um, that it is, I think, in recognizing your disconnection in each of these areas, the disconnection you feel uh, sometimes from the Lord, from people around you, and from your work, will give you insight into the way that God is working in your life now and give you hope about the place that we are ultimately headed where heaven comes down to the earth. Uh, Christian author Christopher Wright once said this, that, um, that we often begin to tell the story of Christianity with, you're a sinner, and we conclude it with, you need to make a decision for Jesus, both of which are true, by the way, that what we miss is the garden on both ends. That there is an intention from which we come from and towards which we are headed. When I was uh, in seminary, I went to seminary in St. Louis, and uh, my wife and I were living in an apartment in the city, And uh, the beautiful thing about renting 
is that when something breaks, you just call the landlord and they just like send somebody to fix it for you. And so that was our situation. And I don't remember what went wrong. It was something about the front door. The front door was not working right. And so they sent a handyman out to come work on the front door. And uh, this was in the springtime, one of the like two weeks a year when it's nice to be outside in St. Louis. And so I was sitting on the front porch doing some reading for class and the handyman is right behind me working on the door. And so we get to chatting and uh, he finds out that I'm in seminary and headed towards being a pastor. And so he tells me that he has just become a Christian like in the last two weeks. And so we chat about that some. And then finally he says, can I tell you something really strange? And I said, sure. And he said, since I became a Christian, the world has turned color. And he says, now don't get me wrong, it's not like I saw things in black and white before, but now all the colors are so much brighter and deeper that when I walk in the park, every blade of grass and every leaf on every tree, I know where they came from and what they're about, and everything has this deep, vibrant color that it never had before. And then he said, is that normal? (laughs) And I said, I think that's very normal. And I wished to myself to have more of that fresh taste of what it's first like to become a Christian and to remember again the garden from which we come and towards which we're going and the purpose for which everything has been made. Um, May the Lord refresh us all with us this morning and um, use it to connect us with those around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word and the intention of your heart to make us to be connected with you, with others in this place that you've made for us. Um, Would you sustain us in the time being, continue your work, undoing all the brokenness, restoring us to the intention for which you made us. And Lord, also we ask that you would indeed come back quickly. Um, This afternoon would not be too soon, in fact. Uh, With John, we look forward to your return and hope of all the things that you will do, restoring us fully and completely at last to the image that you have made us for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.